Welcome to CAE Catalyst, Defense and Security Podcast. The word catalyst is most often associated with change. In the context of this podcast, we will be looking at the key drivers acting as a stimulus in bringing about results in the defense industry. CAE Catalyst joins experts from CAE and our industry to discuss relevant topics affecting our defense and security customers and community at large. From training to technology, we will discuss the catalysts that advance mission readiness. Hello, and welcome to CAE Catalyst, Defense and Security Podcast, Episode 1, Understanding the Military Training Battle Space. Changing global environments are forcing defense and security organizations around the world to reconsider long-held beliefs about technical skills training. Tried and true instructional tools and approaches that yielded successful outcomes in the past are no longer able to support requirements for increasing capacity, speed, and capability. This is prompting military services to investigate modern approaches to instructional design and education technology. My name is Dr. Regan Patrick. I am the Chief Learning Officer for CAE Defense and Security. As the Chief Learning Officer, I'm responsible for identifying and developing scientific methods and approaches to learning technologies and learning methodologies in building training systems. I joined CAE in 2018 after a 26-year Air Force career as a combat rescue helicopter pilot, amongst a number of other jobs. And uh, I'm with CAE now in a new role to venture into a new future. Joining me today is Ms. Maurice Carmichael, a 22-year Royal Canadian Air Force career officer and pilot with over 3,500 hours of flight time. From uh, May of 2010 to July of 2013, she was the commander of 431 Squadron, the Air Demonstration Canadian Snowbird Squadron. She was recognized in 2005 as one of Canada's top 100 most powerful women by the Women Executive Network. And she's a 2013 Elise McGill Northern Lights Award recipient as well as Honorary President of the Air Cadet League of Canada. Also joining today is Dr. Gary Eaves from Australia. Gary started his career in the simulation and training business in the UK approximately 35 years ago. He's a career simulationist. He's worked in simulations and training for planes, trains, automobiles, manufacturing, entertainment, and healthcare. He has a PhD in simulation from the University of the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. His dissertation was the use of gaming technology to create simulations. Gary is currently the principal technology officer in the Indo-Pacific region. Maurice, let's begin with you here to discuss some key issues that are driving the need for training transformation. Specifically, I'd like to talk with you about needs assessment. If you would, give me your perspectives on the importance of needs assessments and how we understand the military training battle space of today. For sure, Regan. Uh, for uh, for us, I think we see over the years and over the decades of of having training programs with the customers really a critical first step to uh, to ensuring that our training is really aligned with the job and the organizational requirements of of our customers is to have this needs assessment completed. You know, because without that, then um, the training that we will do subsequently. Uh, may not be fully guaranteed. We need to understand the students that we will teach, understand where they come from, what their skills are, what their training is already. And then we also need to understand what the end goal is and how this will be accomplished. And in that way, we will have the, the best possible training for them. 
So depending, really, it is really job specific, really skills and in, in really understanding and assessing what is required with, uh, for the customers. Yeah, absolutely. So really an understanding of what the need is before you march down the design and acquisition phase for the equipment that we use to train our students. Certainly something that I think is really critical for us. Uh, Isn't there a problem in that, that when we uh, go into such a needs analysis, we're attempting to predict what a requirement is for the future based upon some sort of historical understanding of situations and the one of the dynamic key issues we're facing right now is that we've got an incredibly dynamic and evolving complex environment. So how can we predict what a, what a capability is going to be now for a system that might start in five years and run for another 10? And especially Great. on programs that we're working on right now, as you're bidding them for a program that will run in 20 years from now, you can just imagine that the 19-year-old's going to be in his 40s uh, potentially then. So that's a really great point, Gary. Within that, you know, when you're mapping your needs analysis, you're going to uh, indicate what a, capa- a, a training capability might be and then a capacity. And again, you've got the same issue with forecasting capacity based upon a current situation for a future situation that you really don't know. You're making some educated guesses around. And sometimes those uh, capacity issues can end up uh, creating like a self-inflicted wound that we have now where we've designed in limitations to our capacity to cope with change and expansion. I think it speaks to the need, Gary, to really redo the needs assessment on a regular basis, especially if it's a long-term contract to keep up with the technology and the requirements. Exactly. Yeah, the the, the cyclical approach. Absolutely. Very important. So certainly you need to bake in flexibility in whatever needs assessment process you follow to ensure that your training remains relevant and active, right, As, as training programs and as training needs develop. Great point. Yeah, thanks. Gary, I'd like to follow up on that, if I could, by discussing program capacity. That's a, a measure of how many students how many, how many students can flow through a training system at any given time. Give me your thoughts, if you would, on the, uh, the issue of program capacity and how it's driving training transformation requirements. I sort of hinted at it, I guess, when I was interrupting uh, Maurice there, but the, the, <laughs> the capacity that we, we create is often do derived from some preconceived assumptions about what what is a period of training, what does it need to look like, um, how frequently do we repeat it, and what's the period of time in between those repetitions. And a lot, a lot of that is based on guesswork. There's not real much science and certainly not much publication around the, the period and frequency and intensity of training to arrive at capability and maintain capability. And because we've taken that historical linear approach to these things, we have set some rules and conditions around how we define capacity. And what that doesn't allow us to do is to break it, introduce new capabilities that alter capacity, recognizing issues like we we build in a limitation because of the availability of instructors. We build in a limitation because what we define is the amount of time required on a training device. What we don't do is look at the individual and say, what do we need to progress student A 
through a system to achieve a desired competency, recognizing that student A may have different aptitudes than student B. So we, we, we try to put everybody into this one size fits all approach and therefore comes a capacity limitation. Right. So this is the uh, 19th century approach to training, which is what many of us grew up with, of course, which is this bucket uh, method where students are lumped together into a bucket of classmates. They go through as a cohort, same syllabi, same training requirements throughout the life cycle of the training program. Very little flexibility baked in, much as we said with needs assessment. Is that your uh, assessment as well, Gary? Absolutely. What we have is we've made ourselves a rigid system. We haven't made ourselves an adaptive, flexible system to cope with the needs of our dynamic and increasingly complex environment. And I think it is an opportunity to really look at a student-centric approach, rather, and that's the evolution and the, the, the future that, that we want to take. So to ensure that the students have uh, their training is adapted to them and it, it ensures that, that it has the proper areas that are focused on for a specific individual. Mm, right. Potentially one of the other issues is that we, we rely on defense personnel to manage and deliver this training. And unless they are dedicated professional and are not going to be put on rotation, We've got, we've got to make sure that we, we create a professional cadre of instructors and educators who stay with the program. So every three or four years, we're not having to reinvent the process every time and bring a new person up to speed. We build a body of knowledge that is persistent and not constantly changing. That also has a severe impact, I think, on capacity. Absolutely. Maurice, you mentioned something here that uh, I'd like to explore a little further. Uh, it has to do with student support and engagement, uh, specifically with, with non-technical as well as technical skills development. So student support and engagement being a driving issue in training transformation. Can you give me your thoughts on that? Mm -hmm. So in addition, Regan, I think to being student-centric and looking at individuals as opposed to a cohort going through a course, uh, we also need to look at the, we are looking at the non-technical skills. We see the evolution of the battlefield, the evolution of the platforms that are used, and, and the type of missions that uh, those candidates will do in the future. So the, the need for uh, resilient, resilient operators to the also complex battlefield that they will operate in uh, requires different skill sets. So in, in addition to the real technical skills of, of what we can uh, teach those, uh, those uh, students, it's also the non-technical uh, skills, more the professional side uh, of the, the person that will graduate from those courses. So less about knowing and more about learning, perhaps, when we look at uh, building training systems and where the current training battle space is going. And evolving, absolutely evolving, evolving yes. Yeah. Interesting. Gary, your thoughts on that? Yeah, the, the issue of non-technical skills is particularly challenging and, and not just restricted to our defense environment. It's across many different domains. And one of the things we're trying to instill in, in these candidates is the ability to cope with uncertainty. And if you look at right. a lot of what we train for is very proceduralized. There is a, a, a defined stepwise sequence of actions that result in another action. But if you're, when you're dealing with a, a non-technical skill in a complex environment, you're, you're, you're going to present the candidate with 
an irregular, dynamic, perhaps deliberately confused situation. And we've got to try and build into them skills that can cope with such a situation. So in terms of designing a training curriculum, that's incredibly difficult because how do you build in this degree of uncertainty within a rigid hierarchy of training program and curricula? How do you build in uncertainty into a pre-programmed simulation-based training event? And then how do you enable an instructor to adequately observe and spot behavioral markers in the dealing with those uncertainties? That's a real challenge. (laughs) Because it involves instructor development as well, as you're mentioning, Gary, because yes, it is for the student, but the instructor also needs to have the the proper skills to be able to teach uh, the student in that environment. Uh, Instructors are so important to this process and we have to make sure as i mentioned before that they really are a professional class you know Mm -hmm. that they they come to these situations with no bias they come with with an open mind and the flexibility to cope with the changing demographic of candidate that's coming through the system in the way in which they behave and and then act as the the channel for input from subject matter experts in in the actual operational environment to put those that feedback into the curriculum at a very regular and frequent pace. So not not waiting for a five-year review cycle before you start changing the way in which you might address a particular problem, because the environment around us doesn't go on a five-year review cycle. It's changing all the time. So we have to be able to match it somehow. Uh, And that requires a great degree of flexibility and creativity on behalf of the instructors who use simulation as a tool because it's not the end in itself it's a very convenient mechanism of dealing with situations where you need safe controlled repeatable exercises mm-hmm. you know that do no harm that give the designer the flexibility to do the impossible because just like for the students for the instructors it's the same it's not just the technical skills that they're passing on to the students it's those professional skills and and ensuring that uh, the instructors are as much lifelong learners as the the candidates. Absolutely, yep. Yeah, the concept of lifelong learning is uh, certainly uh, evolving and growing. We're seeing quite a bit of that around the world, and it represents a tremendous opportunity to improve learner outcomes on the backside, of course. Thank you for that. So, Gary, our experience has shown that there is a need worldwide in all domains, all battle space domains, to optimize instructional design and the approach that we use for training students. So I'd like you to share your experience and uh, issues that you have experienced regarding uh, optimization of instructional design. Uh, share what you got. Yeah, sure. Um, as I was alluding to earlier, yeah, we've, we've got... Um... A, a number of challenges within this, not only from the instructional side, but also from the demographic that's coming through the system now. You know, we, we've got people coming through who are very uh, used to and adapt and uh, expectant of advanced technologies in their own instruction. So they'll use systems that we haven't used before when we were learning. So we have to put our mindset in their mindset to understand what they are expecting and how their, how their newer minds work. So they want a lot of self-paced learning. They want um, packets of delivery. They're not prepared to sit still for 45 minutes listening to somebody talk to them. You know, that they, they want micro snippets of information. Often that information needs to come to them on demand when they want it 
And in, in a real-time sense, they don't often see the point of filling their head with memories and, and procedural capability and volumes of information when they know when they need to use it in real time, they can access it almost on demand and then use their higher order skills to analyze that information and then apply it in context at the real time. So we've got this you know, diff different type of learner. We've got someone who wants information now and I want it hot and ready to go. We've got uh, so someone who is impatient and has, has a very high degree of confidence in their ability because they're often the people that we're selecting to go through this process anyway. So we've got to recognize the, the tailoring of our instructional methods to meet those complex and conflicting demands. So it's a real challenge. And of course, that's a, that's a challenge for the people who are incumbent in the training system to recognize this because they'll, they'll come to it potentially with the view that this is how we do things. They are effective and it's how we have done it for quite a long time. We've proven our point, shall we say. But what we've got to recognize is that those proof points are historical and out of date. We've got a very fresh, dynamic environment and we need a different outlook on this in terms of instructional design. Gary, would it be accurate uh, in your mind to say that uh, we have sort of either linked or competing demands, and those would be the demands of the demographic or the student, as well as the demands of the eventual customers when we talk about uh, instructional systems design anyway, two different elements that are not always aligned. Would that be your view? Absolutely. Because, I mean, yeah, the, the, the instructors are going to have one view. The customers are going to expect a certain outcome in terms of um, competence and confidence in these young people. And then we've got those in the system which are used to dealing with things in a different way. And we've got to provide um, a high degree of motivation for them. We've got to provide mechanisms that promote engagement in this um, learning. And we've got to demonstrate to them very clearly that what we're attempting to instill in them is relevant to their future. What will it do? How will it help them perform in an environment to achieve their best for themselves and their teams? Um, examples are like gamification. You know, they, they want to see how they're doing. They want to observe their own performance. They want to rank themselves. And they, they want to be able to see these stepwise increments and, and ladders being climbed in terms of their abilities to know they are achieving the goals they want for themselves, but also for the organization. That, and that, that's a challenge. Go on. And it comes back to the instructors, the professional instructors that will find a way to best teach the students and, and make it so that they retain all this knowledge. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and the problem is, is some of the language that we use in our lexicon now around you know, how we talk about education. You start talking about flipped classrooms to people. You start talking about gamification to people. They, they may not um, know what you are talking about, or they may be challenged by these, these changes that are coming to their tried and tested environment, you know? Maurice, sounds very expensive. Give me your thoughts, if you would, on affordability and cost control here. I think uh, on, on that side, it comes back to a number of topics we've already discussed. But, you know, of course, in addition to the good program and project management, practices, uh, the solution needs to, it needs to include our training needs analysis, training media analysis, ensuring that uh, we have the needs assessment and that we're doing the 
proper training at the right level as well. So in order to to ensure that we we capture all the costs and and the uh, the overall program. So yes, needs assessment, perhaps as well downloading training to the lowest possible device that can be uh, used for uh, to to answer and to accomplish the task is is important as as we're looking at affordability which is a topic that concerns everyone. Sure, downloading is on a lot of people's minds right now. Gary, give me your thoughts on downloading if you will. That's interesting. Yeah, it is because um again it presents a bit of a challenge and an opportunity in, in as much because we've got new, newer uh, devices coming through that are going to enable us to achieve what I sort of call task decomposition. So if you've got an overall task um, that requires a very complex system and a high degree of fidelity to achieve it, if we're going to increase our capacity and leverage some of these new technologies, we have to break it down into subsets of tasks. So we de- decompose the task and then enable some of those tasks to be delivered on a multiplicity of lower end, cheaper virtual reality, augmented reality, personalized type devices. So we can achieve competence in a deliberate practice format. So uh, just as they are doing in sports these days, you know, this type of approach has revolutionized a lot of sports practice. So you identify key components of the task, you, you build them into a, a deliberate practice environment utilizing a simulator, you repeat, you repeat, you repeat until you achieve mastery, then you add the next element. You go through the same process, then you add the next element after that until you get to the whole complete task. And there's a very strong argument for breaking these things down in such a way such that you challenge the competency of the candidate with an appropriate level of fidelity of simulation. It might not look like a real simulator because it doesn't have face face validity. It doesn't look like the real thing. But in terms of its construct validity, it might be able to accurately measure and assess the skill for that element of the procedure. And then you build on all of that and then only expose the candidates to the highest level of fidelity and the highest level of validity when they are absolutely ready to fully exploit it. And that, that's a real challenge in blending in these technologies into that area. I mean, it's, it's a funny little story, but I've, I've built some train simulators a while ago and some of the train drivers didn't like it because the cab of the train driving, um, the, the cab of the train didn't have the coffee making facilities that are normally behind their seat. It doesn't look like a real simulator, right? And and many years ago, when I was a very young guy, I worked on a Nimrod simulator and we had the same issue because the pilot came along and said, well, the window doesn't open. How relevant is that to the task? In terms of face validity and fidelity, yes, because that's what the real thing has. How useful is it in terms of the training task? Zero. It has no contribution whatsoever. So we have to break that mindset. Absolutely. Gary, let's expand on that and talk about the adaptation and integration of digital innovation into the training system. Then as we talk about downloading, as we talk about drivers of training transformation here, give me your thoughts on integrating digital innovation. Yeah. One of the um, problems we face with our cycle of capability acquisition is it comes in irregular big lumps, you know, 15 year gaps between capability introduction. And if you're very lucky, you might get upgrades in between where there's opportunities to improve improve the technology you're using to deliver that. So that's counterintuitive to innovation. Innovation is happening around us all the time. So 
how do how do we build that in in a, a technological roadmap that's required to make sure that our the technology we're using is matching the availability of the environment and matching the capability required to deliver the you know the the end result, which is a high degree of competence and competence in task. Now, many years ago, that was okay because defense was the driver. All the tools and technologies that we were using, we were creating, we were setting the pace and we could control our own rate of innovation introduction. Now that's ended. If you look at what's happening with game technology, with graphics processing units, with the software that are used to create these environments, we are now the followers. So we have to be looking to industry and academia to provide us with that technology roadmap and then align our cyclical introduction, because it can't just be a great big crash type approach anymore. It has to be a regular pace of introduction and align that with what industry and academia can offer us. So we stimulate academia with the requirement, academia develop it, industry provide it, we ingest it into our system. But that has to be a very deliberate process. It's planned. We can't just wait for it to happen and suddenly wake up one day and realize we have a new capability. And we've got to be chasing this on a continual process. Yeah, Maurice, tell me, expand on this a little bit with respect to synthetic environments specifically. Uh, Something that is on the minds of a lot of people these days is how are we integrating synthetic environments, virtual augmented reality, uh, into our training systems in a smart, responsible way? It is uh, certainly, uh, as Gary mentioned, so sometimes it will come from the technology side where we have a, a new Uh, opportunity to have on our devices. Sometimes it comes from the battlefield. We talked about the evolution of the battlefield and how there's different needs. At times, the platform will remain the same, but the mission will change. So we have to adapt to that as well and to innovate with how we will teach and ensure that uh, they, they have the skills. So with the training devices, depending on the, uh, how we can adapt, to uh, the existing uh, devices that we have is certainly uh, one area that's constantly evolving for the uh, for the for the instructors and for the but team. If, if I might, what, one of the things we've got to do is make sure we have the means of of proving to ourselves that what we're doing is the right thing. If we look at some of the introduction of some of these technologies, like, like game-based simulation, and there are a lot of them around and have been for for decades now. We introduced them because they were the shiny new, new thing. They looked really good. Everybody felt good about using them. But there was no scientific outcome that said, yes, this has changed either a technical behavior or a non-technical behavior. Everybody felt like they were doing the right thing and spending a lot of time and money in doing so. But there was no proof point. And what we've got to do is be brave enough to go back and challenge some of these things to say, yes, that's what we should be doing because we are achieving these level of, uh, levels of outcome. And that gets back to the point I was trying to make about this whole idea of validity. We have to understand the difference between something that looks right, feels right, and can measure skill. Uh, and so for your face content and construct validity are so important in understanding how we use some of these things. You know, I've seen it in healthcare where you can achieve perfectly good technical skills in delivering an injection by using a needle and an orange. But if you look at that as a simulator, it doesn't look like the real thing. It has no face validity whatsoever. So you'd have to, uh, an uphill battle in convincing somebody that a needle and an orange is a good tuition tool. And we have to have that same sort of mindset in this area. So we're not restricting ourselves. 
And it's about yeah. the proper analysis and the needs assessment, understanding what the ultimate goal is and seeing what uh, what is best used, what what tool is best to use to uh, to accomplish that. Absolutely. And that we need to be flexible in that. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I, I've seen I've seen sonographers teach beautiful technical and non-technical skills with uh, a foreign body injected into a chicken breast. And they they ultrasound the chicken breast and they repeat, repeat, repeat. And it's so much cheaper than a real person. But it enables them to achieve the motor skills they need to acquire a good image and the interpretive skills of what is that foreign body that some someone put in the chicken breast. But and don't probably use it safer. afterwards. It's not a good idea. Probably safer than a real person, too. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> yes. Unless you're the chicken. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Well, let me let me uh, drive this a little further than this point specifically and introduce the topic of feedback and evaluation strategies, because ultimately what we're talking about here is our ability to improve learning outcomes, which is what everyone is interested in the military training battle space. So Maurice, I'll start with you here. Give me your thoughts, if you would, on the importance, and let's get some application examples here of uh, feedback and evaluation strategies as we look to the future. Yeah, I think in the feedback and the evaluation, if we bring it back to the instructor again of the, the objectivity or subjectivity of the assessment, is important to those new tools with the data analytics with the training device that we have to uh, assess the students objectively and there's certainly a need to look at the uh, at how we we have the process and how we assess and evaluate the uh, the sequences yeah this is a uh, this is a hot topic certainly with uh, a lot of folks that i talk to around the world uh, the importance of gathering feedback, using that feedback effectively to make relevant changes to a training curriculum uh, moving forward. It creates an adaptive system that I think everyone is looking for. Gary, what are your uh, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, f- feedback is immensely powerful uh, and it's part of our adult learning cycle. You know, we, we, we do something, we reflect upon it, we modify our behavior, we do it again and we observe a change. Now, at what point in that cycle do we give people some feedback, though? Do, do we uh, wait until the end of an event and do it cold? Or do we interject during the event to provide it in a hot so that it's relevant right now to what I'm doing? I've made a mistake or I've, I'm not performing perhaps as I should do. And the physical or virtual instructor gives me some coaching right away. So there's a big debate over how, how we should proceed in that way. Perhaps um, for certain elements, maybe a hot approach is better. And then uh, for others, may, maybe you wait until the end. Within that, we have to recognize what we also have with simulation. As I mentioned earlier, we've got a safe, controlled, repeatable environment in the tool that we used. And that gives us the opportunity to enable people to make mistakes. So we learn from our mistakes. So how far should we let people go in a pathway? Recognizing all the points we were talking about earlier in terms of motivation, the self-paced learning, the inquisitive nature of people they want to explore. How do we enable exploration within this constrained environment? How do we enable someone to develop those free-flowing thinking skills we're looking for in these people and not jump all over them because they've deviated from a pathway? They might just be taking a different path to the end result than, than what we want. So I think we need that that level of flexibility in our feed, feedback mechanism and, and and enable people to make mistakes. I mean, uh, in my healthcare days, uh, the, I've, I've seen a number of situations where you've allowed a team-based 
emergency medicine situate training situation with a mannequin in front of these these highly skilled professionals and you've allowed an instructor has allowed it to go to the point of failure where the pa- the virtual patient dies now that's a tremendous learning opportunity some people ethically might object to it because something bad has happened but in reality bad things happen so if we want these people to be ro- robust resilient people with these higher order skills based upon experience because if we look at what expert decision makers do they have these schema that they rely upon to map to current situations to make these informed decisions how do we enable that and how do we facilitate that creativity by not clamping down on them with with feedback that perhaps inhibits creativity and doesn't allow the development as i say of these free thinking individuals that we're looking for that's a real challenge and <laughs> and go on please Oh, I was going to say very similar to the flight simulators when we can let an emergency run its full course to the logical conclusion, which could be an aircraft accident or a crash, but very similar to the healthcare world where the uh, student will just go through the full process of uh, of their, their train of thoughts, for sure. Yeah, because like within that, we've got this whole idea of the, the feedback and assessment is provided against what? is provided against a set of standards and some predefined outcomes where have those standards come from where where are those out, outcomes been defined from prior experience prior history instructor capability based upon events that have happened that are not the future they are the past so you could almost say they're sort of irrelevant because they're not reflective of what could happen tomorrow in an uncertain situation so how do we how do we create a flexible system that doesn't come to it with built in bias from the constraints of the curricular constraints of the assessment regime and then constraints and bias from the instructor we were talking about you know professional development instructors earlier it's super critical that these people are encouraged to come with an open mind we capture the best of what they have in systems so perhaps this is where ai comes in in as much as we can capture the knowledge of those super experienced professionals embed that into intelligent systems that provide the basis for unbiased review processes so you've got a good sound bedrock of assessment based upon observable measurable artifacts that can be mapped against thousands of other candidates so we've got reliability and confidence in that decision making and assessment process and then allow the instructor to really focus on the super fine detail of what is required to turn ordinary into great performance bring it back to the small subjective way as opposed to the objective as i was talking about at the beginning that's required to ensure mm. we have the good evaluation yeah 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 there you go well i wanted to thank you both for your thoughts today uh, on this really critical topic here understanding the modern military training battle space and uh, maurice i'll start with you I'll give you an opportunity for a summary some general thoughts if you will on uh, your vision of the future and where you see the industry going i think uh, for me and especially for the last uh, year or two working on on a complex proposal for the future of aircrew training uh, here in canada it's uh, it's an exciting time because it's a time to look at yes what we've done in the past but looking at the future and as i mentioned earlier looking at uh, 20 years down the road 25 years potentially some of the the students that will be on this uh, that will uh, take this course in 20 years are just born now so 
we it forces us to think about the future and uh, and how we will teach then and what are we going to use and the instructors that will be around uh, at that time. You betcha. How we'll support them, how we'll develop that curricula, all of those variables. The technology, even. Technology, yes. absolutely. Gary, same question to you then. Uh, I, I can't help myself. I mean, I'm a, I'm a technologist. I always have been. But I, I, I think the opportunity to leverage what we're doing with the rapid, frequent introduction, the brave introduction of new technologies, but backed up by some science to make sure we get the assessment right. And if we can get those two things sorted out, we, we really can change the dynamic of our training environments and achieve this uh, resilience that we, we need and the ability to uh, produce professionals who can cope with this very dynamic and uncertain environment we find ourselves in right now. Absolutely. And it appears that uh, it will not get any easier anytime soon. So uh, I definitely agree that uh, we need to be investing wisely in our resources, in uh, proper needs assessments and evaluation strategies and any number of different topics that we've covered today, which fit neatly in between those two. All right. I thank you both very much for your time today. Uh, It's been a great discussion and I look forward to uh, continuing our discussion moving forward. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of CAE Catalyst, Defense and Security Podcast. We hope this content has been a stimulus to your education, thought, and understanding as we expand awareness of the significant drivers within the defense industry to support mission readiness.